it is worth it. So re-engage begins this week, and I, I want to just clarify something with you, if you're wondering, because um, I think we have, but I, I really don't want you to think about it just in terms of, oh, my marriage is really bad. Um, it's an encouragement, and here's why. Um, in part because, the reason I said I think last week, I think everybody should be married go through this, because this is going to be part of what we do to outreach to this community. Why? Because their marriages are in trouble, aren't they? You know people. And it's just an encouragement because I know what's coming in, in those 16 weeks can give anybody the tools to transform their relationship because they're grounded in Scripture. And so um, I just want to encourage you, even if you don't have time, you know, I'm not signing up. Okay, maybe you could just, just come this Wednesday, um, see the first one, get a kind of better feel for it. We'll talk about that. I would encourage you to do that um, so you can share that with somebody else because the next, next session we'll do is in the fall. And uh, anyway, so sign up if you haven't. It's out there. Um, talk to me. Talk to uh, Jason and Melissa or Jackie, whatever. Uh, they can encourage you. Ask any questions you have. Um, but it is truly an encouragement. And uh, I'm excited to see what God does with that and how that projects out into the community and uh, uh, what happens. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 5. We made it back. <laughs> Mark chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to kind of just reacquaint ourselves with what this is, what's happening and uh, see kind of where we've left off. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 15. And they, the disciples, came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And I want to just insert, just contemplate that for a minute, shall you? I mean, just think about what that means to be bound in a chain, and it's not strong enough to hold this person anymore. Frida often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son uh, most, high, uh, most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country, and all the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Father, thank you for the gift of your word, which we can understand and garner these great truths that come from it and how you've asked us to live and to be and follow. So I just pray for an understanding today of what's transpired in this man's life and the gift that you're offering. And so I just pray that you open our minds to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Of all the human qualities that humanity possesses, one that demonstrates the image of God in which you were created in, the one I think, I don't want to say the most, but it's got to be right up there, 
more godlike, more divine than forgiveness. The fact that God forgives, God is in the business of forgiving. And that's what you see in this, this story. And what I want to encourage us to understand is you're reading that and going, okay, well, that happened a long time ago, so what? How does that apply? What? We have to come to understanding of, of making these applications in our own life. So, first of all, let's just define forgiveness. Forgiveness is the canceling of a debt that's owed. You understand that in banking terms, you know, canceling of a debt, that's typically where we go. But we're not talking about that per se. What we're talking about is relationally. Uh, the fact that God forgives and gives us this opportunity, and then also in our, I'll say, horizontal relationships with one another, earthly relationships. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. He cannot change because there's nothing to improve on in his character. And I want to just bring out this too, just kind of from the start. Why is that such an important issue? Because you have to ask the question, and I want to make this connection back to where we've been, by what standard. This doesn't change. So in the back of your mind through all of this, today, next week, whatever, as you process and live out Christianity in your life, that little question should be running in the background like your computer does its thing in the background. You don't notice, but it's filtering things through. By what standard? The question becomes is, does God exist then? The answer to that question is yes. Even to those that you say, or that you know, where you work, they're, they're atheists. That's not true. God exists. He's put it in them. The knowledge of himself, Romans 1 says, he put it there. Something else is happening, but he put it there for them to know. The very next question that needs to be asked, okay, if God exists, then which one are we talking about? <laughs> right? Well, you interpret it this way. Someone else interprets it this way. You really can't know. And I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. We, we talked about that before. You can know. God wants you to know. He doesn't change, nor can he change. Malachi 3 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. The context of, that, of the prophet Malachi is that God is judging the nation. He wants to destroy it, I mean, completely wipe it out, just like they did in, in the conversation that God had with Moses as they're coming out of Egypt. I've had it. They're stiff-necked people. They don't listen. They don't obey. And Moses intercedes and steps in and says, God, you can't do this. Your name is going to be defamed you know, because everybody's knowing and hearing about what you're doing, and then they're going to say you're not big enough and strong enough to get them to where they need to be. You can't do this. And so he relents. And so God is remembering his promise to Jacob, if you will. And not that God forgets. It's not for him. It's for, in that case, the nation of Israel. So he's not going to destroy them. He's going to discipline them. Well, what does that have to do with understanding what God is, is, is in your life? In at least two ways. If God is not who he is, if he's not who he says he is, if we can't know him in Scripture, then you're left at least with two options. There's probably more, but at least these two. One is, you have to come to terms with God in your own mind, meaning you create him. The strange thing about that is, you can't get outside of your own mind. You are not transcendent. So anything that comes out of your mind, well, that's kind of scary. How so? And this is how, to me, how relevant it is, because you're seeing this lived out in our culture presently. Oh, there is no God, so I get to make him up, and this is what it looks like. This is a form it takes in culture. If you haven't seen... Uh, Dr. Phil's did an interview or a panel. Just, just go search it. Dr. Phil and then, um, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Matt Walsh. Just, and it'll come up. 
And you'll see this played out when people say there is no God and you can make it up and they're having this conversation in regards to sexuality, transgenderism, and he's asking the question, explain to me what you mean by woman. And, and, and the answer is, I can't. <laughs> That's what it looks like in culture. It's a fascinating dialogue, if you will. When you say there is no God, then you become one unto yourself. So that's one way. You get to create that in your own mind, and that's a dangerous place to be because, again, we're seeing this lived out in culture. The other way, also, that's being lived out in culture, if it's not you, you just transfer the notion of God to somebody else, namely, which we've lived out for the last two years, to the experts, right? And there are some people still, and that's, they just have to wrestle with this, but there are still some people to this day that won't come out of their house until Mr. Fauci says it's safe to come out of their house. So everything gets deferred. It's not that there is no God, it's just which God are we talking about? Does that make sense? Malachi continues in verse 16. He says this, A book of remembrance was written before him, meaning God, of those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. They shall be mine. He is claiming a people unto himself. Verse 18, Then once more you shall see this distinction between the righteous and and the wicked, because there is a distinction. And you have to note the distinction. What's the distinction? Malachi makes that pretty clear. The one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And we, so we talked about this the last three. The one who does the will of God, the one who does not do the will of God. One is righteous, one is wicked. He continues, if you go into chapter 4, let me just, this is, this is the response to that. For behold, the day is coming. There's a day in the future, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evil doers will be stubble. The day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. How do you get to arrogant to have the Son of Righteousness rising up on you? You saw it here in Mark chapter 5. It's forgiveness. How do you know? Go back to Luke chapter 5, down to verse 18. When all the dust is, dust is settled and, well, the pigs are bobbing in the water, <laughs> verse 18 says this. As he was getting into the boat, meaning Jesus, the man who had the possessed with the demon begged him that he might be with him. That's a response of salvation. That's a response of forgiveness. This is the gift that God is giving. But Jesus didn't permit him, but said this, Go home. Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How he has had mercy on you. That's forgiveness. How do you go from arrogant and evildoers to having the sun on you? It's coming to understand what God has done for you. God has done something unique in this man's life. There is two things that we need to wrestle with today. One is this vertical relationship that you have with God, whether you believe that or not, whether you still think you're an atheist, and it doesn't matter to me, you have one. And you have to understand what's transpiring that is totally out of your control because God is not up in your head and you don't get to decide the standard. By what standard do you use for life? Something has to happen. 
chapter 4, I'm sorry I'm bouncing around so much, but if you go back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he says this, Behold, this is how much God desires this. Again, so this is God's will for you, just I'll say that up front, forgiveness. This is the extent in which he's going to make this possible for you and for me. Otherwise, this is not possible. Verse 5, For behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. That's pretty harsh. Who was Elijah, by the way? John the Baptist. What did he do? Call people to repent. Make way the straight paths of the Lord. The Lord is coming. The King is coming. And he's going out into the community, calling everybody to repent. Get yourself ready for the King who's coming. What was his mission and his message? To prepare the way for Christ so people could receive him. And so he preached repentance so that forgiveness could come to you. Each one of you. Back then and today. Jesus is that forgiveness. And that's what you see in Mark chapter 5 here. With the man that everybody had written off. No one gave him the time of day. Luke 19, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. No one would give this man, they did everything. If you read the understanding, the chains, all this stuff, trying to control him, trying to conform him to some semblance of morality and image so he could fit in with society. And they used all these external things that would try to to do that so there's some semblance of order in his life and the life of everybody else that he, he affected. And yet Jesus comes and restores him. How far will he go to forgive? How far will Jesus go? He traveled across eternity to meet this man that day, wandering in a cemetery amongst the tombs. And then Jesus stopped at the cross and stopped to meet you there, calling you in the same way to come and be forgiven. That's the nature and character of God. Exodus 34 says this, The Lord, the Lord God, a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful, keeping His steadfast love for thousands of years, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's it's God's desire. He doesn't change. But what does? If He doesn't change, something's changed, right? Well, that's you and me. We're the ones that change. We're the ones that move about, specifically in the view of His nature and forgiveness. We are typically driven by our own fluid standard of morality, what our emotions dictate to us, and you see this increasingly in our culture. So we have to ask the question again, by what standard are you using? See, the world and sinful people are depending on God not taking their sin very seriously. They're hoping it's seen as not so bad, not that big a deal, and then expect His forgiveness to be equally as reckless. And if your sin is not taken seriously, really, how in the world can you appreciate what He's doing, the forgiveness that He's offering? In other words, God's forgiveness cannot be reduced to meet your standard or mine. It is His and in His alone 
In doing so, if that's the direction you go, you corrupt his character, character and nature, his holiness. You create a God just like you. God never has, nor can he, nor will he acquit a lawbreaker by whimsically just ignoring what's been done. He doesn't dismiss evil like that. But it did have to be dealt with. That would make him an unjust God, by the way, not worthy of worship at all, if that's what he was doing. Just kind of handpicking and choosing, and yeah, okay, I'll wink at that one. Not at this one. That's not a just and holy God. So Jesus had to be sent. He sent his only son for your sake and for mine. He made him to be sin who didn't know sin, to take it upon himself that we might become his righteousness. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's forgiveness. That's how this even happens in the world. It's a theme all throughout Scripture from Adam to Luke 15. All through Scripture. The story of the prodigal son, Jesus. This is what God's character and nature is like. Peter, after the resurrection, after he denied Jesus and felt all the guilt and the weight of all that, when he goes and talks to Peter and Matthew, Matthew 18, Jesus continues that thought process. He says this, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then there's a but, right? And it's a really big one, by the way. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. The stakes are high, therefore, when it comes to forgiveness and how we handle it. That's how valuable and the value that God places on this, how high it is. Jesus, again, demonstrates that in Matthew chapter 18 with the, with the unfaithful servant or the wicked servant. You got this servant that owes this king's trillions of dollars, not unlike our government, which has no intention of paying it back, right? There's no physical means. There's not that much money. They just keep printing it. It's that idea. There's no possible for, for this guy to pay it back. It's just, it's just there's no, so what does that leave you? That leaves you in hopelessness. Okay, no big deal. Charge more, right? That would be the mindset. So instead of that, in this culture, it's perpetual slavery, this, this perpetual, and not just for you. If you're the dad, you're the one that got yourself into this. It's not just for you. Guess what happens? Where do you think it goes after you're gone? To your kids, to their kids, to your grandkids. Again, not unlike our culture. And so he comes to the king, begs for mercy, and he forgives. Why? Because he's the king. He absorbs that trillion dollars worth of debt in and of his own self, in his own government. They absorb it and wipe it out. And can you imagine that? <laughs> can you imagine the joy that would come from that? It's gone. No guilt, no quid pro quo, no anything. It's just gone. And then what does he do? He goes out, finds another servant just like him who owes him 10 bucks throws him in jail, he's beaten, he's driven, he's accused, all these things, and he's stuck there until he pays it back, which he can't pay it back either because he's unwilling to forgive. That's how high the stakes are here. And so the king calls this man back, and you wicked servant. See, forgiveness is in the receiving and giving of God's will for your life. 
So make no mistake, this is one, another area of God's will for you, specifically as a Christian. But what becomes the issue? What is the issue when we, we start diving into this? I believe it's Peter's question when he asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Just seven times? <laughs> right? That's what they were taught. That was their culture. But that eighth time, done, finished, no way. Apply that to how God has treated you. Aren't you glad he doesn't stop at seven? He keeps forgiving. <laughs> That's the point. Hard for us though, isn't it? So we have this relationship that God is gifting you so that you can be in right relationship vertically with your heavenly father. And then there's now this expectation, this command as you will see, that now it goes this way in our relationships. How is that possible? Let me ask it this way, maybe. What's at stake is your eternal well-being. So what's the alternative? If it's not forgiveness, what is, what's the alternative that you're going to, how are you going to live this out? Unforgiveness? You've probably experienced that in what happens in the midst of that in your own life, in a family's life. And again, I believe you're seeing this in large part in our culture. This is, this is where we are. We're not on the same playing field anymore as a culture. The same truths that we hold to be self-evident anymore, that's not the true anymore. So you don't get to be forgiven. What an awful place to go. Because unforgiveness, all it does is divide. Let me make a note here so we try to, to clarify this. This notion that forgiveness has to do with the past. Okay? And if you stay there, you allow yourself to be chained to the past and all its emotions and all that stuff, and then you have this tendency to port that into the future, or into the present, rather, in another relationship. It gets transferred, in other words. It could be in your marriage, your kids, I mean, a variety of ways. And the benefit is, is that it's a recognition that we have to understand that it's in the past. If not, you just stay connected to all the pain that you've had to deal with in the past. So don't abuse today with your past. Don't bring it to the, to the present. Don't bring it to the future. It just keeps you changed there. It's just like an infection that you keep, scab that keeps popping open all the time. You just never let it heal. You just keep scraping it off. Even if you weren't the one doing the offending. And if that's you, there's a good indication that unforgiveness is being transferred to someone or in a relationship that you have in the present. See, forgiveness allows you to leave the pain in the past where it belongs. So let's be honest, there are things in our past, each one of us, that we cannot undo, right? We've all experienced those. But we can to decide to let go. We can decide to grieve if we have to. We can then decide to cancel the debt of whatever that was in my life. I want to make another distinction when it comes to forgiveness as well. Forgiveness is not trust, and don't confuse them. Forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness is dealt in the past. Trust has to do with what? The future. 
And we have all these pithy sayings, oh, forgive and forget. We don't do that. God somehow can. I'll remember your sin as far as east and west. The power of what Christ did at the cross washes that all the way, and he, doesn't, he remembers it no more, Scripture says. This understand that he's capable. You and I can't do that, do we? We remember. But they're not the same, so don't confuse them. Forgiveness is the past and dealing with the past. What is the next question when it comes to trust? What are you asking? You're asking, okay, I forgive you, but the very next question becomes is, can I trust you going forward from this point, right? Or are you going to keep doing the same thing again and again and again? So when you hear, hey, 70 times 7, that's what Jesus said, so that must be okay for this person to keep doing this over and over and over and over. No, it's not okay. There's nothing okay with that at all. You don't put up with that, but I still can forgive. Now, what am I doing in my life? Really cool term, boundaries, <laughs> right? You don't put up with someone just saying, see, Scripture says you can't judge me, you have to forgive me, and that means I can perpetuate this, you know, ad infinitum. No, you can't. Not possible. You may try, but there's a line right there that goes, nope, this is it, this is the boundary. So don't confuse those two things. They're not the same thing. They interrelate, that's for sure, but they are not the same thing. Trust will come. Reconciliation will come, but you can't conflate them both. And depending on what side of the equation you're on, whether you're the offender or the offended, if you're the offender, forgiveness requires you. It's requiring something of you. It's requiring you to name it, whatever the thing was. It's not that, hey, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's fine, but that's not really forgiveness because you're not recognizing as the offender what you've done. That's the whole idea of confession. To confess our sins one to another. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, 1 John. you gotta, you got to say it. As painful as it is, as hard as it may be, we have to come to terms and just say it. Acknowledge that it was wrong. If you're on the other side of that, the offended side, you are obliged to forgive. Just like God has forgiven you in Christ. Now, I believe that is totally impossible without the Holy Spirit in you. I truly do. To get to that framework in mind of peace and restoration, just like, I mean, Jacob's word picture was bases. I saw pictures of it. I don't remember if I saw it when it actually happened. I think I did, but, um, but yeah, just splinters everywhere, right? And you kind of piece it back to the puzzle, but it's just, it just looks like it's forever, it's firewood, <laughs> right? But not with Christ in your life. It's restorative. He redeems you from that because of the forgiveness that he gives. So no matter which side you're on, offender or offended, there are blessings that we need to understand to motivate us to forgive. And I have six of them. Ready? You better write these down. They're really good. <laughs> Thanks, Garrett. <laughs> forgiveness eliminates pride. Pride hinders everything. It really does. It's the foundation of what happened to Satan. It's the foundation of what happened in the garden. It's the foundation of, you know, that's why when you read Scripture, God hates pride. From a response of self-pity pity even, again, holding on to the past and bringing all that stuff to the future so I can justify feeling and expressing the things the way I do, to those who retaliate, 
Both are motivated by pride. And I think we'll, you know, reason to start there is because honestly, I think we all struggle with that, don't we? Or I do. Self gets in the way, and self has to be set aside. We are to die to self. That's the gospel. I no longer live, but what? Christ lives in me. That's this growing and maturing process we have in Christ. So it doesn't allow us to wallow in self-pity. It doesn't also allow us to go around gathering all the people on our side to see, see my people outweigh your people, sir, I'm right. <laughs> and I can still feel this way and gang up on you. It doesn't allow us to do that either. See, true forgiveness sets self aside for one reason and one reason only, because it honors Christ. I still may feel the way I feel, and I still have those feelings, and that's fine, and they can be addressed. But the foundation of it all is because Christ is glorified in what we're doing. Joseph is a really good Old Testament example of this. To imagine that your family... And granted, you know, he had older siblings, you know, I get that kind of. My oldest sibling is 12 years older than I am, so then you're pretty much out of the house kind of thing, and I was this little, you know, eight-year-old bother kind of thing. Not that they would say that, but you know what I mean? You're eight, and you want to hang out with the old kids, and ah. <laughs> And I was still small enough to where my brother could put me in a full Nelson, and <laughs> it was awful. To be sold by your own family to people that are just passing by and then found yourself in Egypt, falsely accused, thrown in prison for years, would you not have cause to be unforgiving and bitter? Boy. But God had a promise in his life. And when you understand when in chapter 45 of Genesis, when you get there, that God instilled that in Joseph, and he understood what God was doing to him. There was no retribution. There was no anything. No, what was me? Just forgiveness. But it takes you and I to get rid of our pride. Number two, forgiveness shows the mercy of God. It shows the mercy of God. If you go back again to Mark chapter 19, this is what Christ said. Go tell your friends that the Lord has what he's done for you. He's had mercy on you. How does Christ have mercy on you? You're forgiven. So go tell everybody else where you live, work, and play. That's what he's asking him to do. Go to your friends, your family. Go tell them that God has had mercy on you. He didn't have to have mercy. If, if, if there was a have to, it's not mercy anymore. It's not grace anymore. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Because God has shown his great mercy in Christ at the cross. He did it for you. And so you as a follower of Christ, are now obliged to be willing to forgive rather than condemn. This is God's heart. You understand it, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John three seventeen. Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, a sin, something, Okay, brothers, he's referring to the church, so you port that up to this. If someone has an issue, caught in a trans, you who are spiritual, meaning the mature, the whole idea in our Christian life is growing and maturing in Christ. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
Don't think that you're outside of the bounds here, that it can't, you know, the sin that so easily entangles us. But do it with gentleness. Forgiveness comes with a penitent heart, and we accept it, and that's it. That's what Paul's getting at. It's done. It's over with. Love does what? Covers a multitude of what? Transgressions, sins. That's how you and I respond. I'm not going to forget. You're not going to forget. But what I can do is I can love, and love covers. It's been forgiven. It's done. It's over with. I can still have to wrestle with my emotions maybe, but again, wherever I, remember the car? <laughs> I'll probably refer to that for a long time. Wherever my emotions supposed to be? In the back seat. I have them. They're God-given. We're wired that way, but I can't let them drive. I run into all kinds of problems when I do. Thanks, Barb. <laughs> right? Because I am wired that way. I am emotional. I prefer passionate. But that passion gets me in trouble. Ephesians 4, also 32, tells us forgive the same way Christ forgave you. That's how we understand this concept. This is how Christ forgave. Now you have this relationship with one another to forgive that way too. Number three, forgiveness restores joy. And isn't that the point? Don't you want to be joyful? This life of joy? Sin destroys everything it touches. Remember, it promises the world, never delivers, and it always destroys everything it touches, even your joy. David prayed in Psalm 51. What did he pray after his sin with Bathsheba? Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. All the guilt he felt for what he did as adultery, as affair that he had, everything, and then you know, killed the husband, basically, and, and trying to cover all the stuff up, the guilt, the weight of it all. No joy. Just this constant nagging and poking and all the guilt that there's a, there can be no joy. Forgiveness restores joy. God takes no punt pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, but he delights when people repent. That's his heart. Why is that? Because he knows what's coming. He knows his great and terrible day. There's judgment because there's a day set aside somewhere in the future that everyone will be judged in righteousness in the name of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to prove anything. So he doesn't want to... He doesn't want that. What he wants is for you and I to be humble enough to to see that and repent. That's Ezekiel 18, by the way. Paul gives us instructions. Again, kind of like Galatians, he does the same thing. But uh, in the Corinthians church, to forgive and comfort so that the offender, the one who's done the transgression, isn't overcome with grief. Or he says excessive sorrow. You don't let them just hang out there. Have you had enough? I don't think you've had enough yet. And, And turn the screws, right? That's not it either. That's not forgiveness. I don't think you've suffered. I don't think you're repentant. I don't think... There's no contrition in what you said. Whatever. And you've just created a new standard for this person. That's not joy. It restores joy. Jesus showed us that joy in the parable of the prodigal son when the father... Again, the context of that is remarkable in that culture that a wealthy man would lift up his garment, expose his you know, naked legs in essence, and the scandal that would have been. I know that's not to us now. And then would run after and out before anybody got to the son to accuse him, to do anything, to cover him, to, to restore that. He ran to meet him. He hugs him. He receives him back into the family. Even though the son knows he's not worthy of that. That's the joy. That's the restoration. That's what it is. Number four, forgiveness establishes love. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Love one another. This is at least one way the world knows that you love and what love is, how it works, how it functions. Let me ask you something. What about our love here as, as a church, as country Christian? Our love for one another, what is it that is remarkable about that? Noticeable. How is it visible to this ever-watching community? It's not that they don't know what love is. I mean, they love, right? They're, 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 they're loving. They socialize. They show up to things. They eat together. They hang out together. They do life together. They just do it differently. They wouldn't maybe come here, but they'll go to a bar, do the same thing, and equate all of that. Well, you do this. This is your thing. This is my thing. I won't come to church because that's just weird to me, but I'll go to a bar. I'll go to this party. I'll go to these things so I can find this very thing. How is love manifested the most so the world can see it? By how we forgive and restore one another. Because that doesn't happen. Again, we're living that in our culture. It's not happening in our, these United States because they're not united anymore in that sense in the, the, of what this nation means and how it was built, that kind of thing. It's being rewritten, the definitions of terms being remade, all that stuff, and it's just being split apart. But not here. You may disagree with me politically, and that's fine. That part doesn't matter. Christ matters. The real test of love is how eager you and I are to forgive when we're offended. Nothing can fracture your marriage, your relationship with someone here in this body, where and when forgiveness is practiced. Can't happen. Ever. Isn't that a remarkable statement? This is where I think you're all thinking, man, you think you're all that in a bag of chips. You're just, <laughs> nope. But I will stand on the word of God and make it confident to you, to me. Why? Because I need to be reminded of that too. I struggle just like you do. Number five, forgiveness proves your obedience. Again, this is God's command to you, dear Christian, beloved. This is, this is what it is for you. Set me aside, but God is commanding you in Christ to forgive. That is God's will for your life, as we've expressed the last few weeks. And please note this too. No matter how you feel in those emotions... If there's any benefit that you get from forgiving, if, if all that went away, it wouldn't matter because he still commands you to forgive. If there was no benefit, if these didn't exist, the very fact that he is God saying that you need to do this and you will do this because it reflects the character and nature in which I created you, you need to do it. I need to do it. Number six, forgiveness, I like this one destroys Satan's schemes. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. 
For we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's 2 Corinthians 2.10. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. What's his schemes? Bitterness, unforgiveness, to let that fester and stir and uh, all that tension. That's his scheme. That's what he wants. Two things to notice about 2 Corinthians 2, by the way. First is that when we forgive, it's as if Christ is there as Christian people. And you can go back to Matthew 18, and I want to kind of, I hear, I've heard this my whole life growing up in church and that kind of thing, and you'll re- probably remember this, but wherever two or more are gathered, I'm with you as well. I'm there too. Okay, that is not a scripture for us to gather here like this. That's not the context of what he's saying in Matthew, that we have to be, at least two of us, for God to show up. <laughs> well, what do you do by yourself? Did the Holy Spirit disappear? Is he not there anymore? The context of that is what Paul is saying. There's this way to, to do conflict. It's judging conflict. Whenever two or more you gathered, you work it out, you talk it out, you're the offender offended, I'm with you there too. It's as if Christ is in the mix of that. Why? Because we're not ignorant of his schemes. He doesn't want this. He doesn't want restoration. He wants everything busted and broken and splintered and scattered and chaos. That's what he wants. But Jesus has come to restore The second thing is for you to decide if that's what you do, not to forgive, you are now dangerously close to falling into one of Satan's schemes of unforgiveness and the direction and the course and the bent in your life that that takes you if there's unforgiveness. I mean, you really don't have to look too far. Think of you know, relationships maybe you have in your family because there's tension and this person won't talk to this person and we have to do like five Christmases now because you can't be here and you can't be, right? Some of you are smiling. <laughs> yeah. Nope. That's not it. That's the scheme. Always the division. That's what unforgiveness does. It's disobedient. It's not loving. It never brings joy and it keeps you smack in the middle of your own pride. And quite frankly, if that's where you want to live, I can guarantee you one thing. You'll be a very lonely person. The man Jesus forgave was such a person. Alone, given up, wandering. Don't go to that side of town. He's, you know, he's doing his thing. He's the scary guy in town, right? Don't do that. Everything the world tried for this man failed. Failed to bring help. It failed to bring hope. And it failed to restore. Listen, if that's your relationship to the God of heaven today, I want to encourage you as much as I humanly possibly can and then pray like crazy the Spirit convicts you and breaks your heart, comes crashing into your life in this very moment. Stop. Stop running alone. And then just turn around. And in that moment, Christ will meet you right there. He's not asking you to fix anything, do anything. All he's asking you to stop running away like Adam, hiding from him. Just stop. The moment you turn around in repentance and faith, he is right there with you to meet you. You don't have to run. He's not standing a mile away or whatever trying to, for you to catch up to be good enough, better enough, or fix yourself somehow. He is always right there when you turn. Why? Because it's his heart to forgive. 
He is seeking to save you. If that's you, stop running. He'll meet you just like he did this man in that moment in time in history. Forgiveness is ultimately about restoration, your life being restored. This is God's gift to the world. And in doing so, there is now hope between you and him. You don't have to wonder about what happens when you leave this earth, when you die, when you're in Christ. Don't have to worry about it at all. Which, by the way, we'll get to in a couple weeks. There is now hope between you and a God of wrath before Christ, but now you are a son or a daughter in Christ. And that hope, because of that relationship, now transfers into every relationship you have here, wherever you live, work, and play, to put the image that he created you in, in this idea of forgiveness, into a reality that people can see tangibly, to understand that's what it looks like. That there truly is a God who exists and this is what he's done and I can see it into you because I know your story and I can't imagine that you would do that but somehow there's peace in your life because I would be just, you know, retribution and after him and just pummeling them in whatever variety it would be but you're here forgiving them. Well, that's the nature and character of what God has done. And off you go into a gospel conversation. It's the same gift he offers hope in any human relationship that you have in this life. Forgive. Be reconciled today. Be an agent of reconciliation today. Forgive one another because the stakes are really high. Jesus, thank you for this example of your forgiveness and grace, your great mercy that you have given this man that I honestly really can't wait to meet when I see him face to face one day. Father, thank you for restoration. Thank you that you seek us out, that you come, and all you're asking is a penitent heart to receive the forgiveness, to stop running, to stop running away, seeking everything the world has to offer, the emptiness of it all, and only you can turn all those things into joy. So, Father, I pray, if there is someone's heart here who is, has not received you, has not repented of their sin, has not confessed you as Lord and Savior, been baptized in your name, who thinks it's all too good to be true, God, I pray that you come crashing into their heart with the Spirit. Truly, Lord, just to lovingly break it and break past the pride and all the objections and all the what-ifs and all the wondering of what comes next. But just stop and turn. And Father, for those of us you've restored, you've made reconciliation. God, let us be the agents of forgiveness that the world will know we are your disciples because of our great love we have for you and for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.